And uh, what is being passed out right now is a, um, an outline of the message this morning. And the, what I want you to do is turn to two different places. But before we do that, I do want to ask for the Lord's blessing one more time before we, before we open up his word together. So without, without any further ado, let's seek the Lord. Dear God in heaven, here we are, your people. We're, we're a needy people and a weak people, an inadequate people, but you have given us your word from heaven, a word to know you, a word to understand, a word to believe. And we pray, O oh God, that as we look at your word today, one more time, indeed we have looked at it multiple times already this morning, and what a blessing to be able to eat from the bread that comes from heaven. But as we look at it one more time, Lord, I pray, would you please grant us the understanding we need. Do that which we so need, Lord. We need to behold you in your glory. Our sins need to be convicted and humbled. We want to be filled with even more joy as we behold the glory of our Savior. So come to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I would like for you to turn to two places, Matthew chapter 19 and Isaiah 33. I put the references on the outline there for you all, so that way you could follow along with where we're going to be tracking today. But again, that's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19 and Isaiah chapter 33. And the title of the message this morning is called, What Lack I Yet? What Lack I Yet? So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, we, uh, in verse 16, we are introduced to a story that we all know, the story of the rich young ruler who approaches the Lord with a question. And in Matthew 19, verse 16, he says this, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He wanted to know what he needed to do in order to be able to attain to heaven. And the Lord's answer is at the end of verse 17, and he says this, If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And what the Lord then proceeds to do is he begins to go through the list of the Ten Commandments. He lists the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. In verse 18, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the young man replies in this way, in the way that we all know. He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Or as we have it in the title, what lack I yet? What else do I need? Well, one of the commandments that the Lord did not list in verse 18 was the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. So then what the Lord does is he comes to the young man and he tells him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. You will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the Lord put his finger on the one, on the one commandment that this man had not kept in his own perspective and the man couldn't do it he couldn't sell all he had to come and follow after Christ there was covetousness in his heart and in fact in Colossians chapter 3 covetousness is defined as idolatry which means that not only is this man guilty of the 10th commandment he is also guilty of the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images. This was a guilty man. And the point 
of uh, for my relating this story this morning is to illustrate our human instinct when it comes to aspirations of reaching for heaven. Humanity is created by God and exists for Him. It says that in Colossians chapter one and six and in verse sixteen, all things were created by Him and for Him. But the span between this creation of God's, the span between humanity and who God is, is infinite in gap. And if you would enter into life, if you would, if you would cross that span, you know what must happen is exactly what the Lord told the rich young ruler. If you would lend, if you want to enter into life, he said in verse 17, keep the commandments. And many of us, like that poor young man, are silly enough to step forward and say, What lack I yet? I have. Lord, I prayed a prayer on my mother's knee when I was five years old. What do I still lack? Lord, I regularly do my religious duties. I seek you in prayer each day. Rather, like Daniel, I seek you three times a day. Or, or like the Lord Jesus himself, I, sometimes I spend all night in prayer. What do I still lack? Lord, I read my Bible every day. I meditate on it day and night. I've read it through multiple times. I've, I've, I've read it through like I've heard of one European preacher who actually did it read it through 400 times in my life. What do I still lack? I, like Ezra, have set my heart to study the law of the Lord, to keep it, to do it, and to teach it in Israel. What do I still lack? Lord, I'm quick to repent, quick to make amends, quick to sing praises unto you. I, like Anna of old, Spend my entire time in the temple with fastings and praying. What do I still lack? Do you see the the presumption behind the question, what do I still lack? I have done these things. What do I still lack? That, that, that when, when we dare to ask a question like that, it shows two very important things. One, it shows that we think very highly of our own abilities. It reveals the arrogance of our own heart. And two, it shows our very low view of God. Because we think, we, we somehow have this conception of my, in our brains, I did it. I did it. What more do I need? But there is... Oh, let, let, me, let me say it like this. Friends, there is only one answer to the question of how we shall enter life. And it is not to erase the law of God. That's very important to understand. If you want to enter life, the law of God must be kept to the nth degree. Always and forever. If there is no keeping of the law, there is no life, but only death and the merited curse of God. But you can't keep it. Instead, we must rely upon the law keeping of another. The law must be kept if you would enter life, but you can't keep it. So instead, we must rely solely, completely upon the law keeping of another. So what lack I yet? 
the merits of Jesus Christ? And that's ultimately the answer to the question, isn't it? Now turn over to, to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. And, and I want us to meditate on this, on this concept together, starting with the theme of universal doom. Universal doom. And underneath that heading, in particular, we're going to think about this idea of a fear of fire. A fear of fire. So Isaiah chapter 33, starting in verse 13. Hear you who are afar off what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And here's the answer to the question. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. So here's the situation. We have two groups of people in verse 14. We have sinners and we have hypocrites. Sinners and hypocrites do the same things. Just one is better at hiding them. Sinners are those who those who break the law of God and sometimes their sins are apparent. And hypocrites are those who break the law of God and they and they mask their crimes with religiosity. But at this point in time, the sinners and the hypocrites are afraid. Fear has overcome them. They have been seized with dread for the simple reason that fire is approaching. Fire is approaching. Now there is actually, admittedly, some discussion as to what this fire is. There are some commentators who think that the fire is hell, admittedly. But there are some commentators, and this is where I fall, there are some commentators who believe that this fire is the holy presence of God. Because the answer to the question, who among us shall dwell with the fire, is the answer of verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, in other words, it is the good man, the perfect man who can dwell with the fire. More on that in a bit. But these people in Zion, so it says in verse 14, the sinners in Zion, these people in Zion are afraid because they are sinners. And when faced with the prospects of meeting with God, when faced with the reality of standing before the holy presence of God, they know that their sins and their hypocrisies will be consumed and destroyed and judged. So fearfulness has surprised them. And here's something that I think might happen in our culture today, even among Christians. If we ran across a man who said, you know, I cannot sleep at night My conscience bugs me too much. All I can think about is standing before God on the judgment day. If you met a man like that, you might be tempted to try to console him, to try to say, now, now, brother, calm down. You've got nothing to fear. But if that man is not Right with God, he has everything to fear. 
He has everything to fear. We have, we have no business of trying to erase the fears from the conscience of a sinner who is not right with God. Instead, if you meet a person like that, and I, I highly doubt in this culture you ever will. I highly doubt in this culture you would ever stumble across a person who is afraid of meeting with God. But if you meet that person, you say, you know what? You're right. You should be afraid. You should be afraid. Because, because of who God is, the devouring fire so the scripture says, I, I, I have some examples here of, of what exactly that looks like. The, the first thing that I want to mention, though, before getting into the examples is, is it is a terrible thing when any created being, when any created being will not tremble before the living God. Yes, and even when Christians refuse to tremble before the living God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in Hebrews 12, 29, the scripture says, Our God is a consuming fire. Not their God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. We can understand the fear of the Lord when, when those like in Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth and the slaves, and it's this long list of different people who cry out to the mountains to fall upon them. Do you all remember that passage? Fall upon us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb they say. That is very logical reasoning. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb because they get who God is. And we can understand that kind of the fear of the Lord. But what we maybe don't understand is when really good people fear God is when really good people tremble before God. And we don't understand it because we don't understand who God is. There is something wrong with our hearts and with our minds that, that we would refuse to tremble before the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Creator of all the earth. In Isaiah chapter 6, the man who had some of the purest lips in Israel, when he beholds God, he says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is a man who prophesied the word of God, who wrote the words of Scripture. Almost just, just the, his entire career is bringing forth the pure and holy words of God. And when he sees God, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. But it was not only the good man, Isaiah, who feared God. It was also the sinless seraphs in the same chapter. Do you remember? They have six wings they cover their feet. They fly. They sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And with two of those wings, they cover their faces so that they would not dare to look on the holiness of God. But the seraphs are sinless and pure and holy. And they won't look on God. Why? Because they get it. They get what we don't get. Think of Peter in Luke chapter 5. He falls in front of 
the Lord Jesus down on his knees and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's from Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. What was it that caused Peter to do this? I just find it fascinating that the context is that Peter caught a bunch of fish at the word of the Lord. And it was the mere catching of of a net full of fish. That was enough for that man to get it. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I think it's also worth noting that the very man who penned the words, perfect love casts out fear. We all know that verse, 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. That same man in Revelation chapter 1 falls down before the risen and glorious Christ as though dead when he sees him. The scriptures ask in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 7, as well as in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 4, who will not fear thee? Search your heart, brethren. I search my heart when I think about this subject and I and I find that I fall so far short because I am afraid that far too often I am able to say I don't. What a terrible crime. There are ways in which we might know and grow in our fear of the Lord, brothers. The first that that I thought of is from Psalm 130, verse 5. If you know yourself to if you know yourself to be one who who cannot say I don't fear the Lord like I ought to fear the Lord. Then Psalm 130 verse 5. Turn there. Psalm 130. Nope, not verse 5. Verse 4. Psalm 130 verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Would you grow in your fear of the Lord? Meditate on the forgiveness that comes from God to you. That He would deign to forgive you. Number two, another way in which we might grow in the fear of the Lord is to pray for it. It's very cliché but it's true. We must pray for the fear of the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scriptures teach. It's the beginning of wisdom. And in James chapter 2, is that the passage we're memorizing in Sunday school right now? James, James 1? James 1, it says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask. Ask, ask for the fear of the Lord. Meditate on His forgiveness and tremble with fear and rejoicing. (laughs) Because as a forgiven person, you have much to joy in, in your fear. But, so that... Believe it or not, that was an aside. 
but it's a it's a glorious thing to think about. It's a glorious thing to think about this this God before whom we we must fear and we must tremble. So Isaiah chapter 33 again. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? This is the fear of fire, the fear of God, the consuming fire. These people get it. And what is the answer? <laughs> the answer is lies in the looming law. The looming law. This is point two. He who walks uprightly, his entire conduct is characterized by the adherence to the law of God. He and speaks uprightly. His mouth is governed by the precepts of God, always giving due honor and praise to the Lord. Never a cross word to those whom he loves. Never a white lie for personal gain. He who despises the uh, he who despises the gain of oppressions. That means he he despises the idea of getting rich off of oppressing people. He uh, his instinct is to hate wickedness. Who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. He he refuses any kind of gift that would cloud his judgment of right and wrong who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. This man's senses are captivated and dedicated to the glory of God. The, the gates to his heart, the eyes of his, the, the eyes and the ears, these senses to his heart, these gates, he has set a guard over them, lest any unclean thing should enter in. This, this is the good man who, if you notice, you have his walking, his speaking, his despising, his hands, his ears, his eyes, his whole body is bound to the obedience of God. In order to be able to dwell with the everlasting burnings in safety, you must keep this completely and fully. There is no way around it. There is no shortcut. God in his inflexible holiness. God in his inflexible holiness will is not able to look at you and say, that is good enough won't be. It won't be the case. Oh, come on. We might think. Be realistic. If that were really the standard in order to enter into life, who would enter in? Well, a good question with regard to that same kind of question is whoever said that God had to let anybody in? Who said God had to let anybody in? His standard is his standard. The Lord said in Leviticus 10.2 that he would be sanctified, that he would be glorified his his the the character of his being is such that he cannot accept anything less than perfection he is the i am the scripture says just constantly pure constantly holy and we must deal with god as he is so who is it that can dwell with the consuming fire? The answer is only one kind of being can. And that means by necessity that every other kind will be condemned. Every other kind will be condemned. That brings us to point number two. If you were to stand up and walk out of out of the sermon right now, you would feel one either furious that 
that someone could believe something when I believe, or two, just feel utterly hopeless and helpless because I can't. Not only can I not, but I've failed already. So that brings us to point number two, the unbelievable deliverance. The unbelievable deliverance. So turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. And this, this second point is why we celebrate Christmas. Because 2,000 years ago, God did an incredible thing. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I have two points here in this in this heading of unbelievable de- deliverance. The first point is God sent. God sent. But when the fullness of the time had come, just like Dad was mentioning this morning, is that when God created history, He created it with a purpose. It was going somewhere. It was aiming at something. It's not just a cyclical, reincarnational kind of mumbo-jumbo. When God created the world 6,000 years ago, he set it on a course that was moving in a particular direction. And in the kind and sweet providence of God involved in that direction is this phrase, the fullness of the time had come. What is it that God did at this specific period? God sent forth his son born of a woman. So notice the identity of this one whom he sent, this one who is God sent. It is his son. It is his son. And it says that he was born or made of a woman is another way we might think of that verb. Made of a woman, which is an incredible phrase. Just think of the verb. Made of a woman? The maker made? The maker made, born of a woman. Think of that phrase of a woman. Why why do you think Paul speaks of, of this one as being of a woman? Well, in the first instance, we have Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman shall come and bruise the head of the serpent. It's not the seed of the man, it's the seed of the woman. It is this is the child of the woman who would come to be the Messiah. He is also the one who is born of a woman because like Isaiah says in chapter 7 and verse 14, the virgin would conceive. The virgin would conceive. This is the Messiah. God sent forth his son born of a woman. And stop and and pause and think of that condescension for a minute. There couldn't have been a a greater uh, condescension than that God, the second person of the Trinity, light of light, very God of very God, He plunges from heaven's glory into, into the dust of earth. To, to, to put it back in the, in the terms that we were using back in Isaiah, 
This is he who is the consuming fire. He is the consuming fire. Remember, the question was, who among us shall dwell with the consuming fire? And what is happening here is that the consuming fire has come to dwell among us, to be one of us. The I, the I am becomes something that he was not. The eternal God who whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain. In, in history, the God outside of history steps in and while maintaining his immensity as God is also comprised into the space of a few human cells in the belly of one whom he would call mother. the immense and omnipotent Lord over all. God becoming a man. And I want you to think of this too. This was not the only time in history that God came down from heaven. He came, he, he'd come down before, like in Exodus chapter 19, when God descended upon Mount Sinai, says the mountain was covered in smoke like from a furnace. There was a blasting of a trumpet. The earth shook. And the penalty for daring to go up the mountain and to gaze at the Lord was death. But when God descended from heaven, Like Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 4, there was no thunder. There was no fire. There was no smoke. But the earth did ring with praises to God from the heavens when the angels announced the coming of the Messiah. And they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace peace goodwill to men he's God's son made of a woman he is God sent and he is also God the savior God could have sent his son Just like John talks about in his third chapter. You all remember that? Let's turn there. This just now comes to mind. John chapter 3. In verse 15. I think it starts in... John chapter 3. There, verse 17. No, we'll start in 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. And by all rights, he could have. But that the world through him might be saved. But that the world through him might be saved. Who will not fear you? Who will not fear you? Who will not fear this one who would who would come down out of heaven, not to condemn the world, but to save the world? back in Galatians says God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem to redeem not to cast into hell to redeem those who were under the law 
those who were under the law, not as those who were able to keep the law, but those under the law who by the law were being beaten down into hell. Because, because the, the law is not a ladder by which men can ascend into heaven. If you, try to, if you try to put your feet on the rungs of that ladder, it will crack under you. Not because of its weakness, but because you, in your impurity, cannot climb it. The law was not a ladder to those, to us, to be able to reach heaven. It was, it was our judge because of its total purity. But... God's son was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Look over at verse 7 at the, at the ultimate conclusion to this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ an heir of God that that God would pity you when you were when you were in such depths of sin and filth that God would look upon you and have mercy upon you who had been crushed by the law to lift you up and to make you his own son in a co-heir with Christ to stand side by side with your savior and to receive with him as a son adopted into God's family. That's what God did. Well, how was it that God became our Savior? Did he take the law, crumple it up, and cast it behind him and say, you're all good to go? Nope. Verse 4, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law. That law, you remember, just like we were thinking about in Matthew chapter 19, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. There is no other way to enter into life. But since we cannot, what God did was send His Son into the world to keep that which we could not The law had to be kept, but we could not. And that is why we needed to rest upon Jesus Christ. And this happens in in two parts. Two parts. The first is expiation. Expiation. The word expiation refers to the removal of guilt. You can hear the word ex in there, like an exit. It's the taking away of, the expiation And in Galatians 3.13, you can see this. Christ has redeemed us, that exact same word again, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Well, why is all this cursing going on? Where does this curse come from? Well, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, it says this, the second half of the verse, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So are you tracking? The breaking of the law merits the curse of God. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to bear the curse of the law. But when God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to re- born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, He does so in the first place by taking away their guilt. Redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A curse for us. And in the second place, this happens not only through expiation, but also through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Those are are big terms, but they're important terms. Turn over to Romans chapter 5, and we'll see this laid out quickly. 
but it's glorious. So be sure to engage your minds here, brethren. We can't we can't drift yet. Um, there is there is one day that the Lord has set aside for worship to Himself. It's the Lord's day, and this is it. So let's let's keep our minds engaged and see what the Lord would have us to learn to learn from this. So not only does Christ take away our guilt at the cross by becoming a curse for us as our substitute, but He also then offers to cover us in His own righteousness. This is called the imputed righteousness of Christ. So Galatians, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift to all men, resulting in justification of life. So in the first instance, what we see here in the first phrase is a description of Adam. The man, the man Adam, has offended the law of God. You see that in the first part of the verse. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came unto all men. And what was the result of this breaking of the law of God? Resulting in condemnation. Adam's guilt was imputed to us. Adam's guilt was counted as our guilt. When Adam broke the law of God in Genesis chapter 3, that was counted as yours. But that's not where the story ends. It says, even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus Christ, righteous act. What is this righteous act? It is the fulfilling of the law of God. As one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. That means that God can now declare a sinner innocent and and not only innocent, but as, as the one who walks righteously, who speaks uprightly, who shakes his hands from the holding of bribes, who stops his ears from the hearing of evil, who closes or from the hearing of bloodshed, who closes his eyes from the hearing of evil. All of that perfection is now able to be counted as yours because of the righteous act of one. And that's an important that's an important word. It's it's just through his act. You see that there in, in verse 18. It is not through the righteous acts of others. It is through the righteous act of one. It is not even through the righteous acts of others who have believed in Christ and now are building up their righteous acts of their own so that way they might be able to enter into heaven. No, it is just through the righteous acts of one resulting in justification of life. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So, and here's where we conclude, brothers and sisters. Here's where we conclude. The law of God must be kept in order to dwell with the devouring fire. There is no other way to enter into life. The law must be kept. And left on our own, we, like that rich young ruler, might be brash enough to say, what do I still lack? But what the Lord would say on that day is, you have not been able to fully keep it. So then what's the solution? 
the solution is to then receive the one man, Jesus Christ. To receive him. And he will impute, he will count his righteousness as as yours. His righteous adherence to the law as yours so that you might enter into life. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Or is that unclear? I'm, I'm really asking. I don't know if I'm being clear or not. Let me, let me say it like this. In Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah chapter 23, you have, you have your answer for when you stand before the judge on that day. When you stand before God the judge on that day, and if you are asked, what is the reason that I should let you into heaven? Your answer lies in verse 6. Now this is his name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. He did it. He is my righteousness. I have none of my own. He's clothed me in his righteousness. There is nothing in me. It's not even the Lord who made me righteous. It is the Lord who is my righteousness. I have no plea except Christ and Christ alone. So what is it that we still lack? If you're not in Christ, then you lack Christ and his righteousness. But if you're in Christ, the answer is nothing. So let's pray. Lord, Lord God, I pray that you would please let your words to sink into our hearts and minds. Help us to, help us to grasp, Lord, help us to grasp the glory of your kindness, the greatness of your holiness. And rejoice before you with trembling, just just like you commanded the kings of old in Psalm 2. Rejoice with trembling. That's what we want, Lord. So we pray that you would please come and move in our hearts. We pray that you would teach us the fear of God. We pray that you would teach us to rest on nothing else than Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. And if there are any here who rest on anything else, Lord, we pray, we ask that you would grant open eyes and open hearts to receive your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.